I think it's important also just to just for the sake of understanding the science. If you don't know the story of, of how the experiments were thought of, the difficulties that the researchers had, then you're missing a big, big part of, of the story. And later it will be hard for you also to think of original ideas or to think how to challenge these ideas. Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student, or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax, and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi, everybody. My name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to The, the Lonely, Lonely Pipette. Helping scientists do better science. I work on transgenerational inheritance at Tel Aviv University in Israel, and I'm excited to share my tips with the Lonely Pipette. Thanks, Oded. So Oded Rechavi did his PhD in neurobiology in Yoel Klug's lab at Tel Aviv University in his native Israel. He did a postdoc uh, at Columbia University in New York before returning to Israel to join the faculty at Tel Aviv University. His lab studies alternative mechanisms of inheritance in nematodes and how behaviors can be transmitted to the next generation. He's an active science communicator and was the founder of the original The Woodstock of Biology meeting in Tel Aviv this year. Oded has received many prestigious awards, including grants from the European Research Council, the Krill Wolf Prize for Excellence in research, Scientific Research, the Allen Fellowship for Outstanding Young Researchers, and he was selected for a list of the 10 most creative people in Israel under 40. Oded. Thanks for coming to share your tips with the Lonely Pipette. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Odette, to, to be with us today. And let's start with a question that is now not really original like you are, <laughs> because we always ask this to start our podcast with our guests. And uh, it's an origin story we ask for. So tell us how you decided to become a scientist. I didn't really decide it. I got, uh, I got into it somehow by... Uh, Inertia, I think. Uh, so I, actually, I'm, I'm coming from a family of scientists. Everyone in my family pretty much are medica medical doctors or scientists uh, in Israel in many different places. Uh, this is my immediate family, but also my cousins and everyone pretty much. But surprisingly, I didn't think I'd be a scientist. And uh, uh, after the army, which everyone goes to in Israel, I, I actually wanted to be a, a, an artist. I wanted to be a a painter, um, and I studied also in high school in the School of Art, Arts in Israel. So after the army, I went to Paris for a few months. As one does. As one does. <laughs> uh, and I just went with a friend, which we shared in, uh, an apartment. It was, it was great. I studied some French, which I won't expose today. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I studied uh, courses. I took courses at the, in the Beaux-Arts in drawing. And uh, I went to galleries every day. Uh, and then uh, while I was doing this in person, enjoying life uh, very much, I also sat with the brochure for the university and thought, what would I learn? And uh, I thought of combining art and maybe psychology or something like that. And then I, I saw that there's a new program for uh, neuroscience, which combines psychology, philosophy and biology. 
came back to Israel. I even had uh, two exhibitions of my paintings. And in parallel, signed up to the university. And when I was doing this, uh, this BSc, I discovered that I liked the biology much more. And then I, uh, I, I started working in a lab during my, my undergrads. Do you still paint? Uh, no, no, barely, barely. <laughs> I don't have, I don't have the focus. I don't know to do it now. Twitter is distracting me, I guess. Uh, and, uh, and, and I started working in the lab, uh, uh, of the person who will later be my PhD advisor, Joel Klug, who recently passed away, passed away this year, unfortunately. And, uh, and then he just, uh, took me and said, uh, you're, you're continuing to a direct PhD program. I didn't have a, a say in that. <laughs> it wasn't a consultation, but it ended up very well. And I, uh, and, uh, so surprisingly, I didn't know that there's such a thing as being a PI. Although my father is a, I mean, is a, is a, is a, is a scientist and is also a medicine, a medical researcher. I always thought of him as a doctor, as an MD, but he's a very, very active uh, scientist. And actually, actually what he does most of the time, but I thought of him as an, as an MD. Uh, so I, I wasn't aware, surprisingly, of this structure of academia and how you do a, a PhD and then go to a postdoc and then get the lab. I wasn't aware of all of that, even when I started my PhD, surprisingly. Just to, to, to get some more precision, it, it looks like you, so you started your, your career in science pretty late, right? Which age were you? It wasn't so late. So it, um, you know, maybe in comparison to people in, in France, it is late. So I, I, I finished the army as every, as most people do in Israel at 21. And then I was in Paris until I was 22. And then I started my, my first degree. So it was, okay. uh, maybe a little, a little later than one does in the US or Europe. Yeah, yeah. Compared to friends, it's 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 definitely a bit more later. But see see where where you are now. So it means that. <laughs> so was it difficult to for you to to jump into this science adventure with having been completely different topic before? No, you know, it was actually very natural. Uh, one thing led to another. I became strategic about my uh, decisions in science later. But in the beginning, I was and very uncharacteristically to me. I was quite uh, spontaneous. So, for example, when I finished my, my undergrads, I, I almost started a degree, a second degree in physics because I was approached by this professor, Uvaliation, the Technion, who wanted me to work on carbon nanofibers. I went to his lab. I started working there and it wasn't for me. So I switched back to biology, but I got drifted in all kinds of directions in the beginning. Now I think I'm more planned, but in the beginning, I wasn't at all. And it wasn't mm -hmm. difficult. It was okay was okay okay and can you think now of a tough moment in your scientific career later when you had a lot of jobs and uh, when you did consider for example leaving science I, I think that the most difficult part for me was the postdoc and I, I have a very good relationship until today with my postdoc advisor Oliver Robert and he was very supportive uh, and helped me a lot and also has an amazing track record of getting everyone in his lab in all the postdocs positions later on But when I went to the postdoc, I left my country, which is my uh, safe place for me, uh, uh, for a few years in the U.S., not knowing what will happen. And it all depends on, you know, the publishing these big papers, uh, which are very, with all the review system and everything, is, you never know. So this was uh, uh, the most stressful part. Also, I had a, a wife, so we had to go together. It wasn't clear what she'll do. That adds, adds a lot of stress. She's a fashion designer. And she had ended up having a great time in, in New York, which was crucial for my uh, success in the postdoc. But before we knew what she's going to do, that added a lot of stress. 
Uh, so I, I, for me, I think going to do the postdoc, leaving Israel to, to, to the US to do a postdoc, that was the most stressful part of the career so far. Hmm. And how have you chosen the subjects that you've worked on over the years? Over the years, yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's very difficult um, to explain this. Just something interests you. It can, it can be, it's an idea that you encounter wherever, reading a book, in the shower, watching a film, I don't know, uh, hearing a talk. And then I decide I want to study it. And I, I try. Sometimes I fail and then you don't hear about it. But if it matures into something, then, uh, then uh, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it's like a train. You, you board and you don't know where you're going to, to live. This was certainly the case in some of the projects that I did, like the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, sequencing and the Toxoplasma parasites. For me, starting to work on C. elegans, on transgenerational inheritance in C. elegans was the result of me going to the postdoc with Oliver Robert. And Oliver didn't work on transgenerational inheritance before. He started this with this work, but, but he was the one that said, hey, let's, do, let's try this, uh, this experiment. So, so you claim that your, your mission is to challenge fundamental long-held scientific dogmas. I, I find this quote somewhere. So, so why is that so important to you? I, I, I think this is just a, a, a pretty good way of making sure you'll work on something important. And it's a sort of a, and it allows you to ask these yes-no questions or go-no-go questions that are very uh, good to have when you're starting something you don't want to just be dragged and lost. So sometimes I have or a student have uh, a, an idea for a project to test, I don't know, uh, how something works, a mechanism. These are more difficult, in my opinion, to start with as a project. The other alternative, which I do most of the time, is to say uh, everyone thinks that this is happening. Let's see if there, there are exceptions or sometimes it's, it's different. This is what I mean by, by attacking uh, dogmas. And, and if you find an exception, then immediately you know you have something important because this is such an important concept. Any exception is worthwhile studying. So this is, this is the one, one strategy that we do in lab. We try to, to go to the most basic uh, things. Sometimes we go to very, to historical experiments done hundreds of years ago. And I think it's a nice starting point to, to many projects. That's great. So, so you just mentioned this cell paper that you published on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Which, which I, I, I just read it. It's a fantastic paper. So congratulations. Congratulations. Um, but so it's, it's called the uh, illuminating genetic mysteries of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I, I love the last line in the abstract said, our study demonstrates that interdisciplinary approaches enrich the scholars toolkit. So can you tell us where does the story come from? How, how did it come about? And what's the story behind the story? This was the most fun collaboration I, I ever had. And I had some great collaborations in addition to this one that were very enjoyable. But this, was, this started by complete chance. It wasn't planned at all. You can't plan it. You know, so many people try about <laughs> talk about interdisciplinary projects and creating these think tanks and all of this, which is great. But in this case, it didn't start like that. It wasn't engineered. What happened was I just joined the university. It was in 2012. And a month after I joined, or even less, I went to a ret retreat for new faculty. It was a two-day retreat where we didn't only enjoy ourselves, but we had to work hard learning the, all the bureaucracy of the university and, uh, and all of that. And in the evening of the first day, we went to dinner. And we went to eat uh, pita, dozian pita in some tent. 
And on the bus or on the way over there, I sat next to, by complete chance, next to a professor. Then he wasn't a professor, but Noam Mizrahi was my co-author on this paper. And uh, we started talking and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on worms, nematodes. He said, actually, I'm also working, I'm also interested in worms because I'm studying the Dead Sea Scrolls. He's a biblical scholar. Uh, and worms dug the, uh, holes through the scrolls over the years. And people tried to, there was actually a person trying to look at the patterns of the holes to connect different pieces mm-hmm. of scrolls. And then we said, great, what, what, maybe we can do something together. This is so interesting. He was telling me about the history of the scrolls, which is really incredible. And uh, we said, maybe we can use more of their biology to learn about them. And the idea came to use the, the fact that they are written on animal skin to extract the DNA from each piece and then use the DNA information to piece them together. To say this piece came from one sheep, that piece came from another sheep, so maybe this should be joined together or apart. And it became a huge thing that we worked on for for over seven years. And and I really like the result. I think it's a really exciting paper that inspires many people. And we now are exposed to so many interesting people, also during the course of this project, but it's really opened many doors. It is fantastic. I love this story. And just listening to you think, talk about it, if the worm ate the scrolls, maybe there's some transmission from one generation <laughs> through the worms. <laughs> no, that's, uh, it's a very interesting story because somehow I think there is a lesson be- behind that. It's like, for, for what I see, I, I don't know, oh, that you, you look someone really curious, interested in a lot of topics and you, and you, you are open for discussion and, 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 and being like that or just open opportunities that you were able to, to seize and identify. And this is something that maybe we should tell people or young researcher to be aware of, to, to keep being that. Definitely. We, I, I'm trying to get myself into this situation as often as possible. So for another example, I have a, a group. I didn't start it. This was started by the Van Leer Institute in Jerusalem. They study uh, sociology and all kinds of things there. And they organized a group of uh, six people from different fields that will meet every one or two months just to talk. Each time it's in someone else's apartment, we have dinner and we talk. And it's really incredible the things that come out. So we are, the, the person who organizes it is uh, Oren Harman, who is a historian and he specializes also in history of biology. He wrote, he wrote this wonderful book. He wrote a few, yeah, he wrote very nice books recently. His latest book is called Evolutions. Yes. Wonderful book. Right. So it's, uh, it's him and there's a composer, there's an artist, a very famous Israeli artist, Sigalit Landa, who's one of the most accomplished, uh, Israel artist in, uh, and uh, there's someone from computer science, a neuroscientist, and me. And we just meet every time and we start discussing all kinds of possibilities and, and things will develop out of it. Already things are happening. I think it's great. It's so so enjoyable and, and I think this is how you should, uh, you should do interdisciplinary studies. Just get people to meet. So it sounds like you're, you're not convinced about planning. Yeah? I am convinced about planning for some things. If I write a grant... <laughs> I have to plan it. Now I'm thinking about some long-term go- experiments that will take, again, multiple years. I have to plan them. But some encounters, you have to inject some, some noise to the system to, to, to make things happen. So it's a combination. So, so we wondered where, where some of these things come from. Do, you mentioned a couple of your mentors, um, PhD and postdoc. Um, do you have mentoring practices in your own lab that you picked up that you learned from your mentors? Sure, sure. 
Um, so first of all, Yoel, my, uh, my PhD advisor, was just extremely open to everything. And he really let you study where, whatever you want to study. In my PhD, I had a, a short time where I studied prions and all kinds of things totally outside of the comfort of his lab. He just said, whatever you want, you do it. And I try to do it with the lab as well. So PhD students in my lab always come to me and say that I have a secret project. I will tell you about in a few months if something Great. comes out of it. And I encourage that. Uh, Oliver is, uh, is also an open person, but he's also super planned and organized and efficient. And I try to also copy that. So for example, you send him an email, he responds in five seconds. I, I do the same also. <laughs> uh, you need a letter, he will write it in, um, you know, after one minute. So I, I'm trying to do the same. So the students know that I'm not the bottleneck to any process, uh-huh. especially to bureaucratical processes. So can you think now of examples of bad mentoring advice that you have heard from others? Bad mentoring advice. So I, I, I heard many bad advices about <laughs> mentoring specifically. Hmm. Or bad advice in general. Bad yeah. advice. So for example, I think that a bad advice for young, for people finishing their postdoc looking for a job, which I think is a bad advice, but maybe some people would disagree because it's a very common advice. But when people <laughs> do their uh, postdocs and they search for a job, This is true, especially in Israel, because many Israelis, for some unknown reason, want to go only to Israel after the post. Some attraction in Israel, people want to come back. It's a great country, but but there's something about Israelis, I think. People tell them, don't apply before you are really ready, because otherwise you might burn yourself. People will say, I mean, is is not uh, well cooked enough. Maybe you should, you know, spend a few more years, publish a, a few more papers. Don't burn yourself too soon. Wait till you're, you know, you have your, uh, I don't know how many papers and then only submit and, and apply. And I think this is a very bad advice. I don't think you should wait for that because it may, might never happen. I think that uh, sometimes you should just try and maybe you will impress even the committee with your science and uh, preliminary results. I don't know. Or your one pers- uh, p- uh, paper, which is really beautifully written. Uh, so I think you should just apply because you never know when a position will open when a, a better competitor will come. So you should just go for it. And I think in, in general, many times in, in science, you just need to go for it. Mm-hmm. Is this also a way to tell people that uh, you shouldn't ask yourself to be perfect to, to ask for a position? That's also true. You, um, no one's perfect. There's, there are always gaps. Some people will like you. Some people won't like you. So you should just, uh, you should just try In science, it's about trying. It's just like submitting papers. Sometimes it's about the volume until it gets accepted. And I think this is relevant maybe to this period of the coronavirus where we don't know how many positions will be open, how much money will be available. So just you should just try and maybe there will be an opportunity. Maybe someone in some university will be stressed that they're going to close all the open, all the hiring process and will say, now I have one, I have one applicant. Let's, let's accept uh, this person. So, so just, just try. Great. How would a young scientist go about finding a mentor? Do you have some practical tips uh, for someone who is looking for advice, specialized advice that he cannot get close to him, for example? Right. So I think the first thing is you have to ask people in the lab, how is this uh, PI? Whether he's supportive, whether she's supportive, writes good letters, how is the atmosphere? All these personal questions, people... The other postdocs or PhD students, they will tell you, and it's crucial. 
because uh, I think that the one leading reason why people stop or quit when they do a postdoc is that they just get, they're broken. They, they just get dispelled. Most of the time when people, if someone wants to be a PI, and of course there are other professions, but if someone wants to be a PI, the most common reason that I see, the other reason that people don't accomplish that is that they think, uh, is that they, in the middle, they get dispelled. They have family issues, health issues, these type of personal things. It's not because the paper wasn't accepted in sale, but it was accepted to a second tier. I mean, this will be, that this, this will be fine. You write another paper or someone will like your paper, even if it wasn't in the top three journals. That would be okay. But if you get despaired and, and discouraged and, and lose hope, then, 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 uh, then you quit. And I think that the, the mentor has a lot to do with it. So if it's someone supportive, they will encourage you and get you to continue. But if they so, uh, bully you and boss you around, then uh, maybe you'll quit. So, so what do you do now when you, when you have faced discouragement because you don't have a, a boss, right? Right. So now... Good question. I, <laughs> I don't have a boss, but I, I once saw... I, I, maybe, you know, maybe I'm not even remembering it correctly because I saw it maybe 10 years ago. I saw uh, some talk on, online of Uri Alon from the Weizmann mm. Institute. Maybe it was a TED talk or something. I don't remember. But he was talking about uh, young PIs and how young PIs in the Weizmann Institute, they get stressed about whether they get tenure or not, and it drives them insane. And he says that for the, the advice that he has is a little counterintuitive, is thinking about alternative careers. If this one won't work, what, what will you do next? Uh, but, but in a fun way, and again, maybe I'm misquoting him, but this is how I remember it. So when, when I don't feel like it, I try to think about other things. You know, maybe I'll be a writer, who knows what I'll do. I try to play with these ideas, or maybe take a few uh, more relaxed day at, days at home. This is the way I deal with it. You could paint, paint again. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then something encouraging happens and, and you're back on the horse. Yeah. <laughs> so this was about mentoring. And we know that, I mean, you, you have a, a lab that is running super well. You, you publish really original and super interesting topics. So to get that, you also have to think about how you recruit people and... And this is the, the, the part we want to talk about is what, what are the most important qualities you look for in a student or a postdoc? Right. So my, my way of recruiting people is very unprofessional. <laughs> so I, I was lucky. I had some really good people in my lab, in, incredible people. I also have good people now, but, but I ascribe it mostly to luck because what I find is that oh, I don't have an interview uh, method. Most of the time I find my, that I'm doing all the talking, <laughs> which is very bad. Uh, but, uh, and I'm, I'm excited to tell them about the things going on in the lab and so on. So I'm not a very good interviewer. Maybe I'm getting better at it. I don't know. What I'm trying to, to, to do is to tell them that in the lab, they have to be very, very independent and very brave and try to scare them off a little bit. Because uh, it's true that sometimes a student will have to open a completely new angle that will cause him to f or her to fail for multiple years before something succeeds. So it's typical in my lab that people uh, don't have anything for two or three years and then they have something. Uh, normally students work on multiple projects at, in parallel until something catches and succeeds. But so how do I interview them? I don't know, I don't know how to choose them. Uh, luckily, I'm, I'm, I'm exposed to many students because I'm teaching a very big course of over 500 students. Uh, so, uh, so I, I'm exposed to many students and then some of them want to come to the lab and then I interview and I, and I choose them. I also get students from elsewhere, 
But I, I just want to see that there's a personal connection, that this is a person that I will get along with mm-hmm. and that we have the same mindset pretty much, although everyone is different. Do you have and, a favorite uh, question that you'd like to ask? Not really, not really. So I thought about all kinds of stupid questions. <laughs> Maybe it's not good to share it here, but uh, I think it's good to be very open and, and natural and try to get them to speak, to expose their personality a little bit so you see whether this is a match. But I really, over the years, I had so many different students with different personality types. Each has their own problems and all, uh, all own advantages. And you have to adapt your t- yourself to every student. It's really, every person is a, an entire world. There are no good formulas, I think. Do you, do, you, do you think you can spot what makes a good scientist uh, early in their career? Maybe, maybe. It's sort of a, a, a prophecy that fulfills itself because normally the people that become, that choose science as a career, they want it very much from the beginning and you can spot that. So, for example, one thing which um, is an advice you often hear given to PIs when choosing students or postdoc, which I don't know if I agree with or not, but it's something that you probably heard as well, is that you want to ask whether, what are, are, you, are you planning to go to a postdoc later on? Do you want to become a scientist? And if there's doubt, uh, people often think that this is not uh, the person to pick. I don't know if that's a good advice or not. Probably not. There are many people, and you will hear these stories and, uh, and, and all, all the time, first of all, about people that had great careers outside of academia, of course, but also about PIs that became PIs, although they didn't want to become PIs. So there's that. So, so you can't, so that's not probably not a good strategy, but I do think that you want to see whether someone has the fire to really be curious and daring and whether someone will be able to stand the grind. And it's not clear. It's, it's not clear who will, and, and, and because everyone looks good on paper. But it, 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 I find it super interesting because, uh, if I can be honest, you look super honest in your interview. So this is a way to get the people you are in front of you. You say, you tell them it's not going to be easy. Sometimes you have to dig into new topics sometimes and manage several things. And your way to get to get new profile is to teach people. So maybe this is something that. Uh, our listener will like to hear about, like, just put yourself again outside in connection with the, the new students coming. Because this is the way I was recruited, actually. My boss told me, that's a new topic. We don't know if we are going to make it. And I, I met her during a, a course and I just jumped on the topic saying, if I do a PhD, I want to do this. I, I totally agree. I, t- I think in general, being informal and open with the students, this is also the only way I know how to be uh, because... My personality, and also in Israel, it's the probably Jonathan probably knows it's the less the least formal place on the planet, uh, and uh, there's no hierarchy and no respect to anyone. Uh, so, <laughs> so there's no. I mean, so if you if you are official and formal, you kind of you look ridiculous in Israel. Uh, it's just not it's it's not even possible. So you have to be open, and you also have to uh, to tell them that th- this will be very difficult, and uh, to try to approach it with humor. Okay, it didn't work. I mean, of course it won't work. I mean, if your, if your experiment works too often, then you're either cheating or you're working on something very not interesting. Because a good ratio is one out of 10 is a great ratio for experiments, I think. <laughs> so, so we, we feel that we know a lot about your sense of humor because we, we first met actually on Twitter. So you were one of the most active scientists on Twitter. You have 
tens of thousands of followers. You're tweeting every day with the most weird things, with captions and videos. <laughs> and so, so why did you do? Why do you do this? And why why is it? Why do you spend so much time on it? Right. So uh, again, it's certainly something that I didn't plan. <laughs> I wasn't active on, on Facebook at all. I have a Facebook account, but I never enter it. I don't even have the app on my phone. I never use Facebook. I never connected to it. I started Twitter in 2016, so not so long ago, just to uh, push a paper. We had a cell paper in 2016. I wanted to broadcast it, so I joined Twitter. In the beginning, I thought I was very bad at it. I didn't get it. I didn't get anything. And I told my wife, I, I, I don't know how to do it. I'm not good at this. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not getting any likes. Right? I just don't know how to do it. <laughs> and for a while, this is how I used it. And then I just started, I don't know, posting these uh, captions and, uh, and jokes and filtering myself less. So I, and, and you ask, how do you have time for to do it? Is that I think that the secret is just not thinking about it at all. So the average tweet takes me maybe two seconds to tweet. <laughs> uh, and then sometimes I erase them later on. Maybe after five seconds, I erase them. But to have no filter, I think it's good. This uh, spontaneity, on, uh, spontaneity on Twitter, it just happens. I, it, wasn't, what, it wasn't planned. What do you think it brings you? Well, first of all, I met many, many, pe many people that I like on Twitter. At begin the beginning only virtually, as time passes, and also this Woodstock of Biology meeting, I also met many of them in person. And I, I, I really like like this this uh, science Twitter community. It's uh, great, great to, to discuss things. I learned, so I stopped using PubMed. There's no reason for PubMed anymore because really everything comes to me. <laughs> you ask Twitter and Twitter send it to you. Twitter, Twitter, <laughs> I have, you know, in, in my fields, of course, so the network of people working on epigenetics, they, everything, that, as soon as someone talks about something in a meeting, I will know about it. And I read, I don't know how many abstracts a day I just click on every paper that has the word C. elegans or, you know, epigenetics or small as I read the abstract and then so, I maybe so you, save it for later to read. So, so do you think you get more relevant results than uh, just a, a cold PubMed research? I think so. I definitely think so. I think that this network really works well. When people join Twitter now, because I'm, uh, I'm relatively big on Twitter, many scientists tell me, how do you learn? How do you choose who to follow? So I say, I, I don't, it just happens naturally. Twitter is really good at that. They, they make the connections and they also, the algorithm works so that your, your uh, followers and the people you follow send you the relevant papers and they just, you learn about everything. I don't know if you saw yesterday, but also they, it makes very, it, it connects to what we discussed in the beginning of, the, of this recording about uh, interdisciplinary studies and unexpected connections. I don't know mm -hmm. if you saw late, yesterday that suddenly MC Hammer The 80s rapper started following me and tweeted these papers on transgenerational inheritance. So very unexpected things happen and it's wonderful. I think it's really fun. And you invited him to be one part of what we will take, uh, talk later, the, the second edition of Woodstock of Biology. Yeah, right? I, I, if he comes, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so bringing this topic, did an opportunity ever come to you after a tweet, like a project or a meeting or, 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 or research question, something that you really implement after a tweet? Yes, so many, uh, many connections were made. Many people approached me with collaborate with col ideas for collaborations. Some of them started to happen. I was invited to, to give talks in different places because of Twitter, also in non-academia related venues. I'm connected now to many journalists 
also in Israel, not necessarily uh, or that reports science, but everything. So you get you get to be part of the world, and everything is connected. So there, there are plenty of opportunities in Twitter. And uh, if you if you had one single tips, practical tip to to give to our listeners who wants to start, for example, Twitter, what would you say? Um, I would say show your personality because people want interesting things. If you if you if you're doing the same as everybody else, then it's not very interesting to people won't wait to see what you're going to say because they'll get it anywhere anyway elsewhere. So show your personality. I think that scientists specifically they want to share their personality. The the format of writing papers, of giving talks, of everything is so you know formatted. You don't get much room. To show yourself and your creative side and who you are, which is part of what we, why we do science. It's like a creation of art. But we create art that's connected to the world, but uh, not only in our imagination, but, but there are many things in, in, in common with making art and people want to show themselves. And we'll talk about it later, but in the conference, this is something that we gave room for. So, so let's, let's talk about it now. So last year you, you launched... Um, This, the, the Woodstock of biology. So I think it came from, a, it started as a Twitter sort of a noise and, and turned into a real, um, a real uh, meeting. So can you tell us a bit more about, about the background and also tell us something about the hashtag physiologically relevant. Okay. So again, this is becoming a theme in this uh, podcast, but uh, this was again by chance because what happened was, <laughs> and I, I told this uh, many times already, But what happened was that uh, I, I believe it was a Friday night that uh, just before going to sleep, maybe it was midnight or something, I tweeted something like, I would be happy to invite to, to organize a conference for the scientists I like on Twitter. And what I meant was that there are many people that I know only on Twitter, not in real life. It would be nice to have a conference where we meet together because actually it's a great community in every way. And then I went to sleep, and when I woke up in the in the morning, there were thousands of replies, oh. <laughs> including me, saying, <laughs> right. "I'm coming." Really, people were super enthusiastic. It was went viral. I tweeted again, and I said, "Do you really want me to organize it? I'm I'm serious. I'll do it." People again responded very enthusiastically, "Yes, please do it." So I said, "Okay, I'll do it." So I didn't call it the Woodstock of Biology. It wasn't my name. That was Shai Biran, who's on Twitter as well. He's in the U.S. I think he's in Boston now. Uh, and he, he, because of this, uh, the, the way that people responded, he said, in Israel, people started the Woodstock of biology. I said, I, I, said, I, will, I will call it the Woodstock of biology. It, it captures some of the atmosphere. There is a joke that I use repeatedly on, on Twitter where I caption these uh, stupid videos of something very ridiculous. And then I write, what's the physiological relevance, which is for scientists, of course, something that you sometimes hear from reviewers. You know, it's like they discover, I don't know, the, the, the structure of the double helix. And then people will say, but what's the physiological relevance? This is only in a, you know, in a tube or, or something. Where, like. where do you find these videos? <laughs> so they're all over the place. I, I don't know how people always ask me, but it's, it's impossible not to find them. If you just scroll, <laughs> they are there. So I, I decided to, to call it the, the physiologically relevant uh, conference which shows that this is something that people do out of curiosity and enjoyment, not for any practical reason. And of course, this is another thing that we often uh, meet in science, especially today, unfortunately, where everything has to be translational and useful. And you hear it from other scientists and you hear it from the public, and it's a shame. So it's nice to do just basic science for the fun of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is the spirit of the meeting. And, and then I said, okay, this has to be a very special meeting, not more of the same. And I started coming up with many crazy ideas. 
And, and I went again in the reverse to start thinking what's, what I don't like about normal conferences, big conferences where you are pretty much anonymous and you just, you have 12 parallel sessions, short talks that are very formatted, everyone showing their slides, saying the same thing. I'm very interested in this topic because blah, 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 blah. And then a million data slides. So I said, I want this talk to be completely, this conference to be completely different. First of all, people will show their personalities. We had a walk-up song for every speaker. When the people go on stage, you hear a song and there's a nice video clip, very fancy production. We managed to raise a lot of money to do this and it was completely free, which was crucial for me because of all this internet thing. I was, it was very important for me to have everyone know that I'm not making a single dollar out of it. So people won't try to think that I'm using it you know, to make money or something. So this was completely free. And we had the DJ and we have video clips for every speaker. When they came on stage, there was a nice uh, music that they chose. And there was a big screen next to the stage that showed the reaction of people, also the video clip, but also the reactions of people on Twitter as they speak. So mm-hmm. someone says something and then someone puts a huge arrow that says this, she's awesome. For example, this is a real thing that happened or, uh, or some funny GIF. Everyone wanted to, to, wanted to speak, got to speak, but we had to close it at some point. The, the, the talks were very short, so just five or ten minutes, depending on the talk, and just one slide. So you have to Great. give it like a chalk talk. It wasn't, you can't just go through many, you know, data slides, just one slide. And when that, your time is up, we, we darken the room and we put the music from the Oscars when someone goes over time in the speech. And you can just, just get taken off the stage. There's no way you can continue. We, we didn't have that at all. And another crucial thing that we had is that the, the, the schedule was completely randomized. So you, you didn't know when you were going to speak. People were sitting in the audience and suddenly the music would come up. They will see themselves in the clip and they will go to stage and give their talk. So people were always, you know, on the edge of their seat. They couldn't say, you know what? This next session is about this topic. It's not so interesting. I'll go drink coffee meanwhile. Because it might be them, or it might be the most interesting talk in the conference. We combined it with, with food and with the, like a party atmosphere. We had a concert. So, so about the, the original content. Also, we heard that you asked people to talk about new and unpublished work. That's true. Uh, that's, that's what, what we explicitly asked, that people only share unpublished work. And it's important because another minus of regular conferences, especially the big ones, is that you, you go and you hear the talks that you already read, where you already read the paper. Uh, so that's a little boring. It's still important, but it's much better to hear something completely new, to be the first to hear it. When you deliver a talk for the first time, you also have more energy, uh, I think. And, and also, uh, it, it, it was dangerous because it was, you expose new unpublished material, maybe you'll get scooped. But in parallel, it's also being tweeted by thousands of people as you speak. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like a lateral inhibition. Everyone knows that you, you said it first. So it changes the concept. Normally when you think I'll expose something before it is accepted and peer reviewed, you think you're, you're putting yourself at risk. But in fact, in many cases, like bioarchive sometimes shows us, uh, when you, when you preprint something, in fact, you are actually claiming priority. And this mm-hmm. is also a changing of sort of a, a paradigm shift, shift in how we think about publishing. And actually, I was going to, to, to tell you that it looks like a pre-print conference or pre-oral conference. I don't know how we can call it. Right, right. We had some very radical things there. We had some very radical things. Two amazing things that happened. The most amazing part was that the, the last speaker of the conference, he wasn't scheduled to speak. And he asked me, we talked, he said, maybe you'll give a talk nevertheless. I won't say his name now, but I don't know how comfortable it is, but he's a very successful researcher. 
as an ERC consolidator and publishes very well and everything is it's going great with him. But he gave a very surprising talk and which was completely unpredictable and unscheduled. And I just talked to him before. It was the last talk of the meeting and, and he said, I said, okay, which songs do you want to choose? He chose a song. Very quickly we went, we, we made the clip for him on the spot and he chose the, the song of um, Jimi Hendrix that closed the actual Woodstock. Okay, the real Woodstock conference. And then he went on stage. This was the last like five minutes of the, of the conference after two days. And uh, he put, as his one slide, he chose a, a big picture of a festival, a music festival. And he started his talk by saying, listen, I'm a very successful researcher. I did, I did this and that. I have this grant, these papers, blah, 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 blah. But another thing that I'm, I'm doing, which no one knows, is that I'm organizing the biggest alternative music festival in Israel, which happens in some wood. And he says, but after organizing it for seven years, I, uh, the police closed it and I lost a lot of money and I realized that I'm depressed. And I realized that I'm depressed not only because of this, uh, of this event, of the festival, but also because I'm not finding satisfaction in, in science anymore. Because I, I, I'm, I'm becoming a bureaucrat. I'm just writing grants, chasing my, my own tail and so on. He says, but this conference gave me hope. Mm-hmm. And he said, Odette, I'm organizing the next one with you. And here I, I found my energy again. And, uh, and uh, he said, I was going to a, to a psychologist. And, he said, she, and she said, yes, you're really clinically depressed or really you're in a bad situation. Said, but now I'm, I can tell her that I'm in a much better place. And I found my passion again. And this is how science should look. So that was really moving. That was incredible. Mm-hmm. The psychoanalysts in Israel are going to hate you. You're going to put them out of business. Yeah. There's plenty of work for everyone. And, you know, so I think that the corona will get many people uh, okay. back to psychology. So that we're, we're covered. That's okay. It, it looks like people, scientists there, uh, were not afraid to attend these kind of conferences of unpublished results. But uh, what are the most unexpected outcome, outcomes of this conference in terms of science project or science outreach that you have? I've seen. First, it wasn't only in Israel. So many people came from different countries. We had people from Europe, from the US, even from Australia, from India. People just came specifically for the conference. Uh, something like 50 people came from different countries. So these were people that uh, this conference has uh, fitted who were attracted. For them. But there are m- more. I'm sure there are plenty of people that will come for the next one. Many people said that this was the most enjoyable conference they ever attended. Uh, it was very special. And I think that the atmosphere is the message, the way to do science. Yes, collaborations will be made and you learn about some topic and maybe you'll follow it. But this happens also in normal conferences. Maybe more con- more collaborations were made, but still. The, the deeper message was that science can be done in a different way. That you can enjoy it, that you can be open about it. And I think this is something that the participants took with them when they came back home. They were changed, I hope. The thing I, I liked from, from your conferences is also it impact, I think, non-scientist people because it showed that we can talk science in a different way. And this is what you said. And probably people that are not from science could see it and say, yeah, science can be fun too. Right. It's very important. There's a big, big gap between how people perceive scientists and what scientists really are. And this is a gap that's leading to misinformation, which we now experience with the COVID-19 thing. People don't know how to talk science and scientists don't know how to talk to the public. And as you said, in the conference, some non-scientists attended as well, funders and other people. All the funders, by the way, were unconventional, were not the, the normal funders of science that, uh, you know, you have a booth and you check some 
tubes. And so we didn't have that at all. We had the funders were um, Eric Schmidt's foundation and Wix for the website. Uh, uh, so very unusual. And other people, I won't, don't, won't, won't mention everyone, but not your normal funders. So you see that people are attracted for, for, to science even when they're not uh, uh, scientists. So you, you've written uh, uh, guides and spoken a lot about, about how to create a, a scientific community. Uh, we're hoping, it's one of our hopes, is that the Lonely Pipette creates uh, a science community. So, so why, but again, by injecting fun and, and by talking more about the scientists than the science, so we understand the people behind all these papers. So uh, why do you think that's important? And, and what tips do you have for people who want to create scientific communities around themselves? I think it's important also just, to, just for the sake of understanding the science. If you don't know the story of, of how the experiments were thought of, the difficulties that the researchers had, uh, then, then you're missing a big, big part of, of the story. And later it will be hard for you also to think of original ideas or to think how to challenge these ideas. I mean, everyone experienced that when we, when we learn about the, the discovery of the double helix, we see all the intrigues, how their thoughts uh, changed and how some people were uh, left out of the, of the discovery eventually. So we understand science is not like the Bible, where you read it, and this is also the Bible is not like the Bible. But I think it's crucial for understanding of science. So for example, in the course that I teach, where I teach genetics, this is how we learn. We learn about the most basic things. This is a one-on-one course for first-year students. But we learn about the scientists and about the, the process of making the discovery. I think it's the only way to, to do science. So that's great. So this has been a great first half. We're going to take a break, but when we come back after the break, we want to hear more about, about Oded, the scientist behind the science. Hey folks, don't run away. You're listening to The Lonely Pipette with Renaud Pourpre and Jonathan Weissman, where our goal is to help scientists do better science. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more, you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Pipette and please share the podcast with your friends. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that. Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. Welcome back after the break. Um, so in the first half, we heard about Oded's unplanned uh, navigation through his scientific career and and about about the the pleasures of not planning um now we want to hear more a little bit about oded um so why don't we start with a very simple question do you have a morning routine what does the day look like when yeah, oded wakes up definitely my day is quite structured <laughs> to contradict myself from before but yes i wake up very early uh, or also because i what's uh, very early so five five thirty something like this. Also, we have a, I have two young daughters, so seven and one point ten. So uh, so for a while I've been waking very early, but also I'm a morning per- morning person. I always wake up early anyway. I also go to sleep very late and wake up multiple times during the night where I tweet. You can see the continuity <laughs> on my Twitter feed. Oh, they never sleep. Yes. Uh, so I wake up very early, and then after organizing the the girls. Many times I also drive my daughter to school, or uh, but um, when I don't have to do that, we always, almost always go to drink coffee, all of us. So with my wife, outside of the house. Even now in the Corona days, we go with masks, uh, like uh, in a ghost town, but we do it still. 
Uh, and we did the same when, when I lived with my wife before we had kids in New York. It was the same. In the snow, no matter what, we would go for a morning coffee always. And so we, I have a few good hours before I start my day. Probably three hours at least. Meanwhile, I tweet, I read, I send <laughs> urgent emails, rebuttal letters, all kinds of things like that. Uh, and, and, then, uh, and then I go to work and I sit with the students. Many times I also try to work outside of the university by myself or also with students. So I go to, uh, when I need to write, I, I, I many times go to the coffee shop or to the beach or some, some, somewhere like this where it's more relaxed, or especially when I need to read and it's ideal. And that's it. And I, and I go back home relatively, relatively early because I want to be with, with the family. I'm not one of these uh, uh, people who stay in the lab until uh, 10 in the evening, not at all. I'm picking my, my, my daughter from school or I'm, I'm going home relatively early, but I'm always connected. So I keep emailing. How do you keep that balance? The, the, the family, the... I just lab. do everything in parallel. I'm always with my phone. Whenever it's not dangerous and I have a, an urgent email, I will answer. And I will answer in the middle of the night. I don't do it like uh, these are the work, the work hours and this is the family time. I try to be present at home, but I'm always responsive. And sometimes I also, this is a little unorthodox, but sometimes when I have to uh, write a paper with a student, then I will also say, let's meet at uh, 10 in the evening or something. And then we go sit in a coffee shop and we work until the morning. We also did this a few times. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes you can get a lot out of it. Of course, if it fits the student, I won't force it on anyone. <laughs> sure. uh, this is very important. You don't want to put these expectations on people. And But this has to be, you have to feel the people and see whether this is something that, uh, and it's also where I don't do it with every student, but some students, this is the way they, they work because also there are, there are night people, there are morning people. It's very hard to synchronize with the lab with everyone. So what is an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? Unusual habit. I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in many, many different things. Movies. I see lots of movies. Now I, my new year resolution for the quarantine is to learn how to play the guitar. I don't know how to do it, but now I'm stuck at home. So I started taking lessons. I hope a few more months of quarantine, I will know how to play the guitar. Can you tell us and our listeners about a major fear that you've had in your career? Major fear. I don't know exactly. I think I was very afraid to be stuck after the postdoc and not get a position. I was even more afraid before going to do the postdoc itself. That's the thought of leaving everything behind. My wife didn't want to go at all with me. She is very connected to her family. She didn't want to go. She ended up having a lot of fun there, which, which saved us. But that was a lot of stress. A lot of stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was one time when I thought my project is going nowhere. And I, then I said, no, I'm not going to the lab today. I just went, I, I went, I played basketball. I still remember this in New York. Very angry. I had to ventilate a little bit. Luckily for me, I had my paper published in the postdoc relatively early so I could enjoy the rest of my postdoc. I had a relatively short postdoc of just two years. But uh, until I got my paper, I was on a mission. I was on a mission and I was stressed. What did you do to, to be released from this stress? Did you, do you have a special... So when I, when I was in my postdoc, this was before I had kids, me and my wife went out every evening. Without exceptions, every evening. So when I came back from work, we went out. We did something every day. And I think this is really, really important to maintain some life the routine and to have a life outside of the lab. If you want advice, this is an advice that I'm giving uh, to students and postdocs. So when you're choosing a lab, choose 
a nice city. It doesn't have to be Paris or New York, although these are certainly great options. Why not? <laughs> but it can also be a place where a great student atmosphere. But don't go somewhere where ever, the only thing that you have is the lab because then you'll suffer. And then if you, you'll be stressed and if things won't go well, you might find yourself in a very difficult situation because you will have nowhere to escape. And I think that even in the most stressful days of my postdoc, I was still in New York having a great time with my wife and my friends. So I had that, the outside life. And I think this is very important. I can't imagine how it is doing a postdoc in some deserted place now in the corona period where you don't know what the situation is around the world and you can't even leave your house. This is probably extremely difficult. I don't uh, envy these people. But still, I guess there, there's ways to deal with it. You find a hobby, watch movies, go on Twitter, and don't get disparate from Twitter. Just go, go for, the, for, the, for the jokes. <laughs> so for the, I, I told my, my, the people in my lab, you have to be on Twitter on this period of COVID-19. You have to be on Twitter. It's so much... So you, you learn so much about the virus and about the epidemiology and about everything. And, and it's, but the, some people in the lab told me it's super stressful. I don't know how you do it. It's horrible for us, but I enjoy it because I prefer to be informed. I don't like to dig my head in the sand, but I guess it's a personality thing and everyone deals with, in, with the situation in different ways. So, so as you said, you know, you, you never know where the challenges will come. Uh, you could be a postdoc during COVID or what are, what are the challenges that, that you face uh, now as a, as a, as a PI and, and, and how do you deal with them? At the moment, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty good. So I, I don't face too many challenges. My life is pretty sweet, I have to say, at this point in time. The big challenge for me is to stay uh, uh, um, excited about the work and find new things to work on. So the main difficulty for me now is how to thinking about how to reinvent the science and to maybe open completely new directions. And I'm thinking about this actively. I'm trying to look for the next big things, try many different things and open myself also just for the sake of the experience, for it to be interesting. And uh, now with the transgenerational epigenetic, I have my niche. It's easier for me to publish in this niche. Uh, I'm already, I have everything set up. I have many projects that just need to happen. But still, I need the challenge of completely new topics. And I'm looking for that. And I'm looking for different sources of inspiration for this to happen. This is the biggest challenge for me now. So, so if someone listening to you there, you know, or dead, everything he touches works, he's in a sweet no, spot. No, that's not true. So, so <laughs> can you tell it, can you give us just to, to apart from drowning their sorrows in Twitter, can you think of, of, of a failure that you had that you learned something from? So every, everyone has failures, but as you said, we only talk about the successes. Can you think of something that happened that, that you learned something from and how? Right. So I, I had tons of failures in science. And many more than succeeded. So I, most of the projects we start don't work, which is why every student or postdoc gets multiple projects, knowing that only 10% would work. This is a very good percentage. If you get this one important thing, then, then you made it. Uh, so I started working, when I just started the lab, I worked on rotifers and DNA repair. And I worked on paramecium. I even, my, my uh, uh, lab manager, Sarit, went to Paris. There's the, the big paramecium community in Paris. She spent a few months there. We started growing them. We tried all kinds of things, but, but no one knows about it because it all failed. I worked on, you won't believe it, but I even worked on songbirds. We recorded for years songbird <laughs> songs, and this never materialized. Uh, we had many, many projects on different projects that didn't work. Maybe some, they will go back to that. 
but we tried so many things that didn't work. Also, you know, small things that are less interesting or less, uh, you know, uh, more so, technical. So, so why doesn't that get you down? Is it just because mm-hmm. you say you know that only 10% will work? No. So this is because of my privileged situation as a PI, <laughs> having multiple people in the lab and not doing all the experiments myself. I'll admit it. I'll admit it. If I had to do everything by myself, it would be difficult. But it's not like I'm not experienced failures. No, I'm also writing grants that are not accepted all the time. And I'm submitting papers that get rejected like everyone else. So I also experience this, uh, you know, uh, things that don't work or these, uh, uh, you're, you, you do so much work in vain. You write a, a huge paper and then you have to totally revise it. Or you have to write a grant and then you work on it for months and nothing comes out. So we experience it as PIs as well. But I know that everything will be all right because I have this tenured position. I'm okay. Uh, even if I won't publish, my life won't be over. But as a postdoc, it's much more difficult. It's much more difficult because a few years of uh, where your CV is empty is stressing. I'm not there yet. I'm not there now, luckily, which is why I don't. I, I, but but I still have to do it also for the for the uh, for the students. For, for, and so if I have a PhD in the lab that, that doesn't have a way to finish the thesis, this is extremely stressful and I have to deal with it. So and can you think back 20 years to, or dead 20 years ago, if you were to meet yourself then, what, what, what advice would you give before you had the tenure and the there? So I would say buy Google stocks, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> I love it. I think this is the first answer we had. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm happy with the career, the way that it's going. It's hard. It's like, you know, this revolving doors movie with Gwyneth Palto. It's hard to plan. I will tell myself to relax more and to enjoy the process more. Like I do now. Not like I do now. This now something that I'm trying to implement. I think also, again, this Corona situation is making all of us think about our lives, how we want to live our lives, how we want to be with our families, what, our, what we want our routine to be. This is something I think you should do all the time. Even as a, as a first year PhD student, you should think about your life because it's fa- part of building your career, taking care of yourself and being around person, around personality and, and being happy. It's part of your success. Otherwise, it's not, it's not worth it and also won't succeed probably. No, I was just thinking to, to jump on that. That is... Uh... If you meet one of your students like that, like a bit discouraged or stressed, do you have a special way to make him feel better? Because you know that at his stage, this is stressful and uh, at your one, you get more relaxed. So do you have special, don't know, receipt or secrets to help them? First of all, when I see a, a person struggling, I try to just, first of all, deal with the problem, which sometimes mean means putting more people to work with that person to help, to help them. Sometimes it's just about getting the resources to succeed. I'm also very okay with switching projects. I always tell the, pro- the students, don't put good money after bad money. I don't care if you worked on it for three years. If it's an artifact, let it go. <laughs> the switch. Maybe this is the source of your misery. And, and if it's not, if it's not about the project, it's about, not about real life struggles that uh, I mean, if you have a, a problem outside of work at at home, then this is the stuff that you you should deal with. Maybe you should stay home for a month. Maybe you should. Uh, and we did this multiple times. Everyone struggled. There are tons of strategies all the time. And this is something that you 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 can't just ignore it. So you say, now take the time off, deal with it. Uh, and just to cheer them up a little bit, we try to do we do retreats in the lab, and we try to have the lab meetings to be 
unusual and exciting and get people out of their normal comfort zone. We routinely, for example, interrupt people when they talk or get them to completely abandon their presentation halfway and improvise. We do this all the time. We had a coach come in and do a debate team for the, for the lab where you have to defend the opposite uh, position. Uh, so we try to get them uh, out of the comfort zone like this. And sometimes it's just, you know, about, um, about taking a few days off, going to read and relaxing a little bit and, and, and thinking about it as a sort of a, a sport or a game. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book or, or paper that you recommend or that you gift to people that, that is a, has been a source of inspiration for you? Source of inspiration. I have many favorite books and papers, but nothing that I give as a, uh, listen, this is what you need to get you out of the funk or to, or to learn about science. I don't have these type of books. What do you read when you need uh, inspiration? I read different things all the time. All, uh, and I, I, I read multiple books in parallel all the time. So, for example, now I just finished reading, uh, and this was very inspirational, uh, a biography of Stanley Kubrick. And he is really, you know, an amazing uh, director. And the, 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 his process to his art is so inspiring and so detail-oriented and it takes his time, decades, to get a film done, obsessively uh, working on every detail and, and, and getting to and, and forming connections with the most, you know, amazing uh, writers, Nabukov and Borges and others. Uh, uh, so, I read uh, so, the Marcel Duchamp. Is one of so the Marcel Duchamp biography is one of my most uh, inspiring uh, uh, the books, definitely. Uh, and I'm also reading a book called Objectivity now, which is also very nice about how we change our perspective about what's beautiful, what's important, how science should be done. And I'm reading prose all the time. I'm always reading a prose, not only science books or, or biographies or things like that. I'm always mixing and reading everything in parallel. To finish the wrap, to wrap up now, uh, where can people find out more about you and, and your work? So we have a website, which is, uh, you can go... I think it's odedreshavilab.com. There, there are some snippets you can see about the different projects that we do in the lab. Not all of them. This is the things that we already published or already advanced significantly in. There are many other things that we work on. The best way is to contact me, send me an email. I will always answer. Or a tweet. Uh, or a tweet. You can also tweet. Night or day. <laughs> um, You're going to be inundated. <laughs> and you can see some, uh, of course, uh, talks online. Uh, about transgenerational inheritance and other topics. We didn't talk about that at all. This is the main thing that we do in the lab as well. Oh, this has been fantastic. You've been, it's been great. And I'm sure our listeners will get a, a lot out of all your, your advice and your tips. Um, can you, is there anything you want to add as any closing remarks? No, no. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. This was really fun just discussing so openly, uh, science. It's really in, in the science world. It's really, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. So we, we met on Twitter. Uh, now, now we have this uh, Zoom link and I hope one day we'll maybe right. before, either before, if not before we're Woodstock 2, um, 2.0, uh, it'll be Absolutely. great to be here. Thank you for everything you're doing for the community because I know you're, you're also running a lab and also, uh, doing very important work on the transgenerational inheritance. So that's great. But thank you for everything else that you're doing for the community because your energy is really uh, benefiting, a lot of people benefiting from that. So thanks for that. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Olin. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at The Lonely Pipet. We hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that you just enjoyed the science. 
Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at LonelyPipet. And please, share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to the Lonely Pipette mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile. You will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show and remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the Lonely Pipette can help you to do better science. A bientôt. A bientôt. Hey guys, one last thing to finish up. If you like the soundtrack of the show, you might want to know who is the artist behind it. The song is called Lovely Swindler by Amaria, a talented French artist who composes electro swing. We are really grateful for allowing us to use it. And if you like it too, the best thing to do is to share it. Thanks again and see you soon.